The toughest thing that was when the military officers came to our house. It was a chaplain, military officer, and they they said, we've got to inform you that Lieutenant Hidalgo's been killed. Now, say the toughest thing when I said, which Lieutenant Hidalgo? I had two in combat at the same time. So, uh, and then when they said, oh, Lieutenant Darren Hidalgo, uh, that, then it was, you know, okay, so it's, it's Darren, and it kind of hits home. Uh, so it was, uh, that's one of those things in your life that you just, it, you know, 12 years later, it just feels like it was yesterday. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. It is such a pleasure to be sitting here this week with our guest, someone you will grow to love, I know, because of his story and his family story. And as I've said the last couple of episodes, while we're very grateful that we sometimes get members of Congress, members of the Senate, some governors, presidential candidates on this show, really, this show exists not for them. And those men and women know that I'm not being disrespectful by saying that. This show exists for the everyday American and his or her story, and you're going to really be moved by the story that we covered this week. And so all of that to say to my new friend, George Hidalgo, thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Your family, whose story we will get into, including the very difficult, tragic circumstance of one of your sons giving his life for this country, is a heroic one, obviously, a sacrificial one. And, and I can't thank you enough, thank not you. just for being here, George but for the witness you are to serving this country, uh, the, the very difficult situation following your son's death. And obviously, we're going to honor him and talk a lot about Darren. And we're also, by virtue of honoring him and talking about him, going to talk about your own service in the military, the fact that your surviving sons have also served. And that's really the story that both of those that were interested in. I happen to be researching a book right now which we'll, we'll, you know, talk about some men and women who are in high-profile positions, but it's really a book about why the everyday American should care about this country. Mm -hmm. And I know that's what motivates you to be here in spite of the tragedy of, of losing your son. We'll talk about Darren in a moment, but before we begin talking about him and, and honoring his life, tell us about your own journey here from the Dominican Republic, right? Yep. To New York City, to serving in the United States Army. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I was born in uh, 1958, Dominican Republic, a long time ago. And uh, basically, my mom and dad uh, divorced shortly after I was born. And I was living uh, there, but my dad uh, moved to New York City, and my mom was still in Dominican Republic. And my paternal uh, grandmother looked at the situation and said, you know what, uh, there's not many jobs, there's not much opportunity for education, uh, we need to try to get him to the U.S., so let's work on his green card. So she worked diligently on my dad and my mom to get permission, because obviously my mom had to get permission for me to come to the U.S., and so eventually uh, she was persistent enough, especially after the 1965 uh, U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic. I think my mom finally flipped and said, yeah, maybe you should go to the U.S. This might be a good <laughs> yeah, idea. maybe a good idea to move to the U.S. So I got my green card and moved to the U.S. in 1965 to live with my dad and his uh, wife, my stepmom. And so they were factory workers. Uh, at that time in the, in the mid-60s, garment 
industry in New York was really big. My dad was a, a piece worker, you know, sewing, and he would work overtime to clean the factory and repair machines and things along those lines. And my stepmom did the same work uh, piece rate. So when I started going to school, my, my grandma was the one that brought me to and from school. And one of the things that she always imparted in me was, hey, in order to pursue the American dream and, and, and realize your goals and aspirations do really well in this country, you got to really focus on education. Do your best in education. And uh, uh, there's a saying she used to say in Spanish, educación abre la puerta de oportunidad, which means education opens the door to opportunity. So I kind of, you know, uh, that that sunk into my my brain and, and described into my brain about how important education was, and so eventually my dad ended up getting um, into an accident at his job. I mean, he uh, had a steaming press accident, and so for a while, um, that was workman's comp and wasn't that good in the '60s. Uh, so we we ran into hard times. We were living in the Bronx at that time, and so we had to move to uh, Harlem in order to live in the projects there. And we actually went on welfare for a while in order to make ends meet. So food stamps, and believe it or not, I have the experience of going to the local uh, food uh, pantry for the Department of Agriculture and getting the big cans of uh, peanut butter and the big cans of cheese and things along those lines. Which you are no right? doubt looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still love peanut butter. I don't know why. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with, with that hardship, my, after about six months after his steam press accident, my dad was trying to think what to do next. And he said, you know what? It's probably going to be better if I find where I can run my own business. And so he talked to his uh, fellow family members and asked if they could contribute toward um, him opening up a newsstand. So since I was probably in about the third grade, I was working in my, uh, my dad's newsstand. So after school, I would go and sell newspapers, magazines, comic books, and Mil uh, Milky Way bars and all those candy bars at the train station in New York City. Uh, that was uh, Henry 68th Street uh, um, that we used to uh, have the store. Then after a while with that, he decided to go ahead and open up a grocery store, move up from the newsstand to a bodega, as they call it in New York City. And so worked in the bodega for a while. And uh, basically, that was pretty hard work. If there's one thing I learned from my dad, and my grandma always used to say that he... Uh, he uh, works like a like a like a mule, you know. I mean, it's like no break, nothing. Hard worker. And at the grocery store, he we would open, we would get up about five thirty, take the deliveries of milk, deliveries of bread, uh, open up the store at six o'clock, serve. Uh, someone forgot eggs and you know for making breakfast for the kids, a cereal. We had that, so we were open at six o'clock. Sandwiches for people going to work and things along those lines. We made that, and we would work till about. 10 o'clock at night. Once we close at night, we would uh, go ahead and wash the uh, the machines, the, the slicing machines, and mop the floor, restock the fridge, and things along. So we were probably upstairs getting ready to go to bed about 11, 11.30 at night. So I kind of uh, got into that habit. So my dad was a pretty hard worker. I mean, that was six days a week we were doing that. And That's we did grueling. Get, oh, yeah, it is. It is. But it, it did, did teach me a strong work ethic, though. And uh, the, the one break that we did have was on Sundays. We actually had a uh, you know, partial day off. We actually closed at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So that was fantastic. So I, I didn't really know what vacation was until I actually went to uh, 
went to West Point talking to other people and saying, yeah, yeah, don't you go on vacation? I'm like, what's vacation? So that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting experience. So because of my mom's, uh, fo- my grandma's focus on education, and my dad and my stepmom supported that also, I was a pretty decent student and got accepted into one of the charter schools in New York City. And there's three major ones uh, that are well-known, uh, Bronx High School of Science, Stuyvesant, and Brooklyn Tech. So I was accepted in Brooklyn Tech there and did uh, fairly well there. And so uh, what ended up, did well in the school, was on the track team, was a pretty good student. Was gonna, my plans at that time was probably aeronautical engineer, and I was going to uh, go with, possibly into the military. And the reason was because my, my parents were poor. They didn't have the money to go ahead and pay for me to go to college. And I did have a SUNY, uh, it's called a Regent Scholarship. You go to State University of New York, these guys score high enough to get a scholarship, but that didn't cover room and board. And my parents didn't have money for room and board. So I kind of looked at things and said, you know, uh, what's the best way? Well, I've liked the Marines. I like the military. You know, that, that sounds like a good way to to go through that channel and then afterwards come out with my GI Bill and that could pay for my education. So uh, senior year, I was talking to my, my track coaches and were asking me, hey, so, so what college are you going to? And I said, well, I'm not going to college. I'm going to the Marines. And they all kind of looked at me like, wait a minute, you're Anal- National Honor Society. You're a great athlete. Why aren't you going to college? And I said, well, my parents don't have the money. And uh, why I did get a Regent scholarship, it's not enough for me to the room and board and things along those lines. So they said, have you even thought about an academy? And I said, what's an academy? <laughs> <laughs> you have no reason to know. <laughs> I had no reason to know. It's not part of your world. Yeah, right? it wasn't part of my world. I mean, I lived in some pretty rough sections of New York City, lived in Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and they weren't exactly the you know the ideal section. I think if everybody thinks about uh, uh, sections of uh, New York City, East New York, you know, they're, they're not known for really being nice areas of New York City. So I lived in some pretty rough areas, so I frankly didn't know. And uh, when uh, my track coaches mentioned that, I started researching, and I said, oh, so I could apply to an academy. So I was looking at Air Force. I said, that's in Colorado. That's too far away. Richard Marine, yeah, the sea, nah, that's a little bit questionable. I mean, I, could, I, I barely know how to swim, you know, <laughs> living there in their city. Um, and then I said, well, you know what? New York, West Point is not too far away. It's actually about 45 minutes away from New York City. So I could get home, visit the family and things like that. So uh, I went ahead and applied to, to West Point. My coaches and the teachers uh, wrote glowing recommendations. And because of the fact that I had worked in my dad's store, uh, a lot of people in the community knew me. And so once they found out that I was thinking about applying to military academy, uh, they actually wrote to the congressman and things along those lines, say that's the hardest working kid, good student, always greets me with a smile. Uh, uh, I, I learned, if there's one thing, you know, besides the hard work, I learned phenomenal customer service from, from dealing with customers day in and day out. And so that, uh, all those uh, recommendations and my grades and stuff, I was able to get a nomination to the United States Military Academy. Uh, what a wonderful I quite... story. <laughs> I mean, because uh, I think probably a lot of people know, but not everyone would. You've got to have that nomination by your member of Congress. And, and given your working class upbringing, wouldn't necessarily come into contact with him. So it's fascinating that the customers from your store, people in the community, wrote enough letters to, to bring that to his attention. 
Well, definitely. And then having the interview uh, with the, the congressman uh, came over to the house and maybe kind of helped that it was a bad neighborhood, less competition. I don't know. But I was able to apply and get in, and uh, that was uh, really eye-opening. It was kind of interesting because my dad's plans for me was going to the family business. You know, I would run the family store and, and things along those lines. And, and that was a little bit different. I wanted to do more. I want to see more of the world. I mean, just working seven days a week uh, and not having much time to see the world and learn and that, that wasn't in the in the cards for me. So that was interesting that most when I went to West Point, my classmates were saying, well, your parents must be really happy. I said, my dad doesn't even talk to me, is what I said. <laughs> he didn't want me to come to, to West Point. So, I mean, I think over the years, uh, you know, he kind of uh, grew to accept it. But that was pretty tough because he wanted me to run the family store. That was a big ch- uh, change. That, that's a, a fairly common story or at least used to be in the United States when the, the second generation of business owners, especially if it's an immigrant family as, as yours was, doesn't necessarily want to do that. Uh, you're, you know, you're sort of staking out your own way of living out the American dream. And, and understandably, although it's probably easier for you to understand now than yeah. when you were <laughs> 19 or 21, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, it's, it's hard for the first generation immigrants who've, who've made those sacrifices to understand that. So you get to West Point, and what was that world like? Wow, it was eye-opening. So I remember uh, my first roommate, uh, he looked at me and says, you know what, I come from a small town in Iowa, and you're the first dark person I've ever been close to. You know, it was just so, because um, people may not know, but the West Point Academy have people from every state and people from small communities and so forth. And me from being from New York City with a huge immigrant population, I'm used to the diversity. So it was pretty uh, enlightening there. But the, the, the facilities there are just top notch, incredible. I mean, it is considered the, uh, the dominant leadership uh, institute in the world. And when you think about developing leadership, uh, that whole concept of duty on our country that that coming solidified my approach to life, you know, um, giving back to the community, caring about your country, caring about your community, caring about your, your family, being a servant leader. And there's a lot of things that I really learned at West Point and met some incredible people. In fact, uh, one of those incredible people is was uh, General James McConville who was my classmate of 81, who I just was up here in Washington. I don't come up here to Washington that often. I was just here for his retirement party. So him and Maria were ecstatic, and they, uh, what a successful career. 42 years, they're the last people in our class to serve. 42 years dedicated services to this country, and he was basically chief of staff of the Army. Um, so I'm That a, had to be a special moment for oh all yeah, of you, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was truly an honor to... to to be there and, and uh, congratulate, you know, one of our classmates to be at the pinnacle of his career and, and represent the country, represent the academy, and, and serve the country so honorably for so long. We're going to talk about that example, especially of, of your generation of, of veterans. But one more question about your own service. You finish at West Point and you become an Army Ranger. What was yeah, that like? Yeah, so, so um, well, here's what's interesting. I actually went to Ranger School while I was at West Point. So they actually, uh, during your third year, you had an opportunity to apply. Very selective because Ranger School is a 60-day course. 
your entire summer break is 61 days. So if you fail something, you don't have an opportunity to be a recycle. So it was, um, it was <laughs> a pretty rough go at it, but uh, made it through while I, was at, uh, while I was a cadet. So I went to ranger school. And then when I left, uh, when I graduated from, from uh, the academy, then my, uh, I attended airborne school and numerous other schools, which the Army sends you to prepare to go to your first unit. And I was fortunate enough to be, uh, to be given the opportunities to have my first assignment as the Berlin Brigade. So I'm a little bit older. So that was actually when the wall was still up. And that was being there, very, very uh, unique assignment, very prestigious assignment. You have to be, uh, all our soldiers are handpicked because if there's a situation uh, that uh, is embarrassing to the nation, if it's an international incident could take place, right? So uh, that was a fantastic assignment. And the history of World War II, being able to go to the British sector, um, visiting Spandau Prison, where we housed Rudolf Hess, um, being able to go to East Berlin on a regular basis. We had access to, to East Berlin, seeing how that side you know, lives and so forth, uh, hearing the gunfire at night as people trying to cross the, the barriers to get into the western side. Uh, it's a, it was a very sobering experience. I think you don't really get an appreciation about how bad communism is until you're so close there and you talk to people and everything else, uh, all the experience, then you say, wow, I don't want that for our country. <laughs> we gotta, we got to do whatever we can to prevent that from happening here, that's for sure. Do you think enough Americans, given the span of time since we defeated the Soviet Union, appreciate that? Because it seems as if, to, to sort of foreshadow something we'll talk about, the difficulty that American military branches are having recruiting men and women just the general mindset of Americans. I don't mean to be too pessimistic mm, about yeah. the American future because ultimately I'm hopeful, but it would seem to me that someone given your service, your family sacrifice, you might you might look at that landscape and say, man, too few of my fellow Americans get it. They, they don't get what we're up to. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, actually seeing and talking to people and walking through the streets of East Berlin, seeing the bullet holes that are still there in some of the buildings from World War II. Um, seeing the difference between the Kufusadam on the western side and seeing the status of the city uh, on the eastern side, it's like 40 years behind in the time zone. Um, so that was seeing it firsthand, uh, seeing the stories about people coming across, uh, talking to Germans that where families were split because um, we ended up having partnerships you know, and relations with, with German families. Just seeing, understanding all that that was going on, what people were trying to do just to get off, uh, to, to experience freedom, uh, having that first experience makes a difference. And I think that today's day and age, we live in such creature comforts that we don't realize what freedom actually is and how easy it is to lose it and what it means. I imagine seeing that firsthand in, in Berlin when you started your family, that probably is something that you've mentioned to your children. No, it might be no. one of the reasons that you've now continued this, this uh, great <laughs> family tradition of serving the country into the next generation. Yeah. Tell us about what you instilled in your own children and, and how that might have been affected by your time in Europe. Yeah. Well, uh, so I had two kids uh, in Berlin. So, so um, And then my next assignment after Berlin was being a uh, ranger instructor at the Florida Ranger Camp, Nagel Air Force Base, Florida. 
So obviously, uh, then we had two kids there. So the kids kind of grew up military bases for the first eight years of their lives and being familiar with the military and so forth. And I think that that overcomes the fear, that familiarity of, of great people. And then having so many classmates and friends that would visit us, even when I left the military, that were military, I think it helps the kids overcome their, their fear of what's the, the military all about. And so... Um, and the fact they had lived overseas and we had traveled overseas and we talked about uh, lots of stories about what makes this country so great. Uh, I'll say, for example, wow, the post office, the, the Bundespost is, is just not as good as the post office. Let me tell you the difference. You know, the kids would hear my stories, right? Or, or when we went to Potsdam in, 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 East, uh, in East Germany, just telling them different stories about how, how great a country we have. You take for most Americans take for granted because they don't know the difference. They haven't seen other places. And being able to relay that to my kids, you know, was really important. So I think they, they all four of them picked that up that, hey, we live in a special place, but you, you really have to work hard. So we installed in them a, a same thing that my grandma emphasized. Education opens the door to opportunity. So... I would say, hey, I go to work, I get a paycheck. You go to school, you're actually going to work. You know what your paycheck is? Your report card. <laughs> so, so if you want to get high paid, that's high grades, right? And then you obviously do the rewards in terms of you buy a book, take them to the movie, hey, we're, we did so well, everybody's on, on roll and stuff like that. So it's just the, the, the focus on, on education, giving you opportunity and setting your future. And, so, and not just the, the, the educational, but also the... Uh, spiritual in terms of caring about the community, whether it was ushers at the church, uh, lectors and things along those lines. We always volunteered. I remember growing up when uh, we were feeding uh, at a homeless shelter, and my daughter says to me, boy, I didn't know there were kids that were homeless. I mean, unless you see it, and, and here's your own, you know, a 14-year-old, I think she was at the time, seeing that is like, wow, you know. So you've got to give back, and you've got to be willing to, to serve your community, and that, that helps and have develop a good foundation for the kids. It makes me think, knowing that the, the greatest correlation between Americans now of, of military service age and their decision to serve is that there has been military service in their family, mm. that if, in fact, we want to address our recruitment issue, and I, this isn't a political question, mm -hmm. which isn't something we're going to cover, it's just sort of a cultural societal question, that maybe one of the ways to offset that is to get American kids to volunteer more. I mm -hmm. mean, thinking about, yeah. you know, your own children's example there, you, you think volunteerism, other, other ideas out there for overcoming this recruitment issue exist? Yeah, it's, it's um, something I always preach with selfless service. Give back to others and you'll be rewarded. And give back to the community, whether it's, hey, let's go on a march to fundraise for library books. Uh, let's go clean up the park. Let's go feed the homeless. Let's just don't worry about yourself. There's other people that are worse off. And sometimes when you help others, you realize that, hey, you know what? My situation is as bad as I thought. Right? And, I think and therefore that, the country's yeah, not that bad, yeah, right? Yeah, correct. It's not that bad. So... Uh, um, I know there have been plans discussed about having everybody commit to some kind of service, whether it's um, Conservation Corps or the Peace Corps or joining the military. But I think that, uh, in my opinion, that, that, that service to your fellow man is really important because, bottom line, the strength of our culture is all of us caring for each other. 
I think that's extremely well said. In fact, the the politicians we've had on this show, I think, would have, would agree with that a lot. So I imagine for for you when your children, including your late son Darren, said that they were going to join the military, it wasn't too much of a, of a surprise. No, you know, uh, when people find out that the three kids went to the military, they say, oh, you must have been career officer. And I said, no, I left after eight years. So <laughs> so I know I was in the civilian world. So no, I just, uh, they overcame the affair because they were familiar. They had a lot of friends and they had, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, saying now don't, don't, don't join the military or anything along those lines. Actually, my uh, my oldest son, he went to University of Wisconsin for his degree and and joined the platoon leader course program to go in the Marines, and he, so he became an Army officer. So it was like, hey, you know, I could I could get some experience, see the world, learn about leadership, and they'll pay for my tuition. That's a great idea. Right? It is a so, great idea. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 Jared went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And then uh, Miles, uh, my second oldest, when he uh, was trying to decide, I mean, and he was a, a honor student. Uh, now brag about him because he actually maxes ACT, so he's a very good student. I think Dad can brag. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can brag about that, right? So I was very, very proud of him. A really good athlete, and uh, I was surprised that he decided to go to West Point. And I asked him, "Well, why did you decide to go to the West Point?" And he says, "Well, Dad, when I..." I had invited him to come with me to the 20th anniversary of my class. And we were sitting in a class, uh, I think it was a math class, and the professor looked at me and come up and shook my hand and started talking to me. I hadn't seen him for 20 years, but he had been a cadet in my class, I mean, my company. So from 20 years, we had a relationship that we were almost like brothers. And my son said, that's it's like family. That's the relationship I want to have. That's kind of, and he loved the, the you know, the place is pretty amazing. So, um, you know, he, he decided to go to the academy. And then, um, you know, Darren, obviously, when it came time for him to make a decision, um, he he had a wrestling scholarship to another school and, and turned that down and wanted to go to West Point. His brother was there. We used to go there on a regular basis. It's a fun school. <laughs> so he decided to, to also go to West Point. And then uh, my daughter decided to go to uh, University of, uh, well, she, she went to University of Green Bay much later. But, you know, that's how all my kids, uh, you know, have a firm belief in education, opens the door, the opportunity, and they pursued their advanced degree. Three went to the military, one didn't, you know. Now you have to be a proud dad. You know, definitely. Am. So tell us about Darren. So D- Darren, um, he had a winning smile, an engaging personality, a jokester and a prankster. He loved to have fun. and But what endeared him to people, he's very empathetic. He would listen to people, very empathetic. So wherever... Uh, someone needed some cheering up. I mean, he was always there for him. And so he was really incredible uh, knack to, to make people relax and, and endear, him, endear himself with them. It's just amazing. He had a unique skill set. Um, I would say he was a National Honor Society, so he's a pretty good student. He was a trumpeter, on the, he played the trumpet on the school band. Um, and then was also, uh, you know, co-captain of the wrestling team. So he was a very good wrestler and uh, was in phenomenally, you know, good shape. Uh, I mean, I would say out of all the kids, probably about the best athlete, you know, de- definitely, you know, top notch. And then um, uh, going to West Point, uh, 
I think having his older brother there, he Darren focused more on fun. He got a little bit more trouble than than, than his uh, than his brother. There have been some him. West Point cadets over the years. <laughs> yeah. That, right? yeah, yeah, definitely got himself in, in, in some trouble. Um, so, so he, uh, I don't know if you've heard of walking hours, pun hours that you have, he walked his sure hours, mm. um, but he did very well there. He got his bachelor of science and was, uh, uh basically had, uh, got a, got a degree in Spanish and decided to, uh, Go to Vilsec, uh, uh, Germany, as his, f- his first assignment. Now, all the all the boys, even I told them not to. Uh, I was infantry, and infantry is grunt, ground pounders, all those, uh, all the, that terminology, right? And uh, I said, hey, you got to go aviation or something along those lines. Infantry is awfully high. You got you know heavy packs, and you walk, and the insects, and everything else. So uh, they never listened, though. You know, <laughs> so, they didn't take so, that advice from Yeah, me. they didn't take that advice from me. So all three of them went infantry, and Darren decided to go infantry. So his uh, first assignment was going to be a Germany. But what happens after you graduate from West Point, the military sends you to a lot of schools. So he went to airborne school. He went to striker. They, he had to get familiar with the striker vehicle, which is what they're going to be using in the OSEC counterterrorism school, ranger school. So almost he took like an entire year to go through all those military schools. And then about July time frame, uh, because he graduated 2009, so he was in Columbus, Georgia for probably about a year. About July time frame, he he was uh, due to come back and and move to uh, VLSEC, Germany, which is unit of the station. Now his unit at the time had already deployed deployed to Afghanistan, so they were halfway through their deployment. So that was July time frame, and so uh, being a dutiful dad to help son pack out his apartment and, and clean out the house and pack up all his house of goods that flew down there, Columbus, Georgia, uh, help him pack out, and then drove up with him to Wisconsin. We were living in Wisconsin at that time. And I thought it would be a good opportunity at that time to to have that conversation that anybody in the military needs to have with those people going to, uh, that could be going to combat. And so my comment to him, this is, I think we have a 13, 14 hour drive. And I think it was about the ninth hour. I said, Hey, Darren, we need to have a, a conversation. So, and I had the conversation with your brother. So, uh, want to have it with you. You're probably going to deploy at some point and God forbid something happens to you. If you don't make it back, what you would you like us to do? And so, you know, he said, and Darren was always a jokester, said, Well, Dad, this is bad luck for having that conversation. I said, Oh, come on. You know what I mean. We need to have this we need to have this difficult conversation. So he so he thought about it and he said, Well, you know what? Um, when I was in in the band and I was on the wrestling team. There was other people that, that wanted to go to college, and they couldn't go to college. They didn't have the money. And obviously, I had a full scholarship. But even if I didn't get a full scholarship, mom, you guys have savings. You were going to pay for my college anyway. So, so, but not that many people are, are fortunate like that. So I think that if you start a scholarship, you know, offer a scholarship to a high school senior, uh, I would be happy with that. Uh, so... That was really startling for for yeah. Talking. I mean, that's yeah. I, I, that's young, really thoughtful. Yeah, very thoughtful. That you know, this, his legacy. And then uh, Darren always cared about people more than he, uh, other than he cared about himself. So the second thing is that Dad, if I don't make it back, take care of those that do. Hmm. Whatever you can do, do whatever you can to take care of those that do. So that was the the conversation that we had. 
um, you know, with Darren in, in case he didn't make it back. So Darren, uh, shortly afterwards, the, uh, he was in Germany with his unit in, in August. And then about September time frame, uh, his unit in Afghanistan, uh, one of the lieutenants had been injured by an IED. They needed a replacement. So they called back to VLSEC Germany and says, hey, we need one of the lieutenants there. And Darren raised his hand, I'll go. And, and talking to the commanders there, you know, Darren was the most outgoing one. He could take a unit in combat and lead them, no problem. There wasn't a learning curve. He could go in and his ability to, um, his empathy and ability to engage with people is just phenomenal. So he's gonna do well, so he was recommended. And, and so he went, uh, he was assigned to his unit as a platoon leader, already engaged in combat in September of, uh, of 2010. So Darren, everything I saw did very well as a, as a platoon leader. Uh, he challenged the family to always uh, send care packages. So we not only sent care packages for him, but also for his platoon. So we took care of his platoon with cookies and organized different, we had different organizations and cookie drives and everything else to, to send uh, gifts and boxes to the men in his platoon. And so his tent was like the distribution hub, um, you know, uh, for, for all the, you know, for, for the morale building that needed to take place. And then it's kind of interesting, Darren, even though he's in the combat zone, when they went back to the, the rear areas it, for some time off, he would volunteer the work of the USO. So even when he's in the combat zone, he's still, he's still uh, you know, trying to, trying to serve others. So um, about February 5th, Darren was on a dismounted patrol with his men in, uh, in Kandahar province. And one of his men tripped a small IED and, and it was a hand grenade. As soon as they saw a grenade, everybody went down. And Darren was the only one that got wounded on that one. That was February 5th. Uh, so that was first Purple Heart. So we get a call, hey, your son's been wounded. You know, I said, not too bad. And I said, well, let me find out what it is. I finally was able to talk to him. And he said he had shrapnel embedded in, uh, you know, grainy fragments embedded into his thigh. And I said, well, shouldn't you take it out? And uh, I said, and he says, uh, well, Dad, I've been a wrestler. I've wrestled with pain. My unit returns back to Germany in six weeks. I'm not going to leave my men without a platoon leader. No, there's no way they're going to replace someone here. I'm going to stick with my brothers in arms here. And... I'll take, you know, painkillers, I'm taking, uh, I'm wrapping it up every day, I'm taking antibiotics so it doesn't get infected, and when I return to Germany, I'll go ahead and have the surgery. Now, me being dad, hearing this, I'm saying, Darren, you have a platoon sergeant, right? Go ahead and get the surgery, right? And I even say, when you get back to Germany, we can hike the Alps, you need to be in shape, so get the surgery now. So I try to use every excuse to try to get him to, to get the surgery. These are all the tools in the dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> correct. And he refused to leave his men, you know, and uh, so he decided to continue, and, and, but, but the last thing he said, uh, to lay my fears, he said, well, don't worry, dad, this will be interesting because I can, I can set off metal detectors. Like, what? So he ended up going to the engineering unit and metal detector his, his thigh and it set off the alarm. So he's proud of that, right? So that's just his mentality. So he's going to be proud about bragging that. I'll be, I'll be going to the airport setting off the alarms all the time. I mean, this is exciting. So he, that was, he was always a prankster and jokester. And so that's, that's his approach. And on uh, February 20th of that year, uh, his unit was attending a shura, which is a tribal meeting. And... Uh, 
you know, they, they knew it was a dangerous area that had been hit before, and there was a certain choke point. Choke point is near in the terrain that, you know, you can't go over or you can't go under. You got to go through it in order to get to the, the other side. And so they knew it was a dangerous area. It was uh, a basically a riverbed that had, you know, walls on the side that you go, you know, from the water coming through. And so you walk through, and, and they knew it was dangerous. Um, they had two dogs, you know, go through. They had a mine detector go through, didn't find anything. Darren was the 16th person, person in line in the platoon. And he ended up, uh, as a platoon leader, he's responsible for the platoon. So uh, at a point, he got out of the line they were walking at and moved to the right in about three steps. And that's where he set off a, a pressure plate that was wired into a very large explosive that was embedded not in the floor. It was embedded in the wall of the riverbed. The enemy's ingenious. You know, they the dogs and stuff. Yeah. So that's when, you know, he was, uh, he was wounded and uh, didn't make it. Uh, he made it to the mass unit but didn't, didn't survive. Um, so I would say the toughest thing, I still remember the toughest thing that was when the military officers came to our house. It was a chaplain, military officer, and they, they said, we get to inform you that Lieutenant Hidalgo has been killed. Now, say the toughest thing when I said, which Lieutenant Hidalgo? I had two in combat at the same time. So uh, then when they said, oh, Lieutenant Darren Hidalgo, uh, that, then it was, you know, okay, so it's, it's Darren, and it kind of hits home. Uh, so it was, uh, that's one of those things in your life that you just, it, you know, 12 years later, it just feels like it was yesterday. And like you could never, I mean, there's no way, even though you knew from your own experience in in the service, to have that conversation with yeah. Darren and with, with your other sons, mm -hmm. that you would ever actually expect oh, to yeah. hear that news, right? Yeah, no, de definitely never was prepared, uh, but uh, never, never expected that to, to happen. And uh, we were able to get uh, our son uh, to to escort the coffin, our other son, mm. Miles, to escort the coffin home. And we were able to have the funerals in, uh, well, there was a huge service in his high school because Darren was, you know, on the prom court, cap captain wrestling team, you know, National Honor Society, I mean, Everybody was his friend, so the high school had a huge ceremony for him. There was a huge event there at Dallas Town Area High School in Pennsylvania, and then we had a ceremony in Wisconsin. Then we flew to um, to West Point, had a ceremony at West Point, and where he's buried. And then uh, later we were flown to a ceremony. About uh, two or three months later, there was. Yeah, about two months later, there was a ceremony uh, in the Osec, Germany, when the unit had returned, and they were to honor all the families of all the service members that had been lost during that deployment. So that was uh, that was a very uh, sobering time. And I would say, if you talk to most Gold Star parents, we're we're, we're part of a clique or a group that nobody wants to be part of, um, and it's. Uh, it, it it passes by that so fast that you're in you're numb from it. You almost don't even realize what's going on. Things are just coming at you because such a tragedy uh, that happens. But you know you've got to continue to to move on. You know. So. And the uh, the passage of time doesn't change the reality. No, not not at all, not at all. And, and so the things that we focus on was well honoring his wishes, right? So. 
his first wish was in terms of uh, setting up uh, Darren M. Hidalgo Memorial Fund. And so we, we went ahead and established a scholarship in 2012. So a scholarship in high school offers a $5,000 scholarship to a um, person that's a community leader and got good grades and is caring about, can continue to contribute to the community going forward. Uh, so this year, we're on our 15th and 16th scholarship this year. Uh, one young lady, uh, Ava Markell, is going to the University of Florida. And the other young lady, uh, Kayla, uh, is going to University of Maryland. So uh, we keep his memory alive because we ask him, research on Darren, and what what character traits do you think you have of his and what do you admire? So we look at the essays, we look at the recommendation letters, we look at are they, are they, worrying, are they caring about the community and, and whether it's a class president or whether it's someone who, who works in Rotary or whether it's someone who uh, works with uh, you know autistic kids or things along those lines. Is um, we select candidates that are giving back to society, and that's who we give the scholarship to. And the thank you letters we get is really heartwarming. And we donated Darren's military uniform to his school, and they have it mounted in the library with a little plaque for him. And so the school really uh, treasures him and the others that, from that school as, that have given their life to this country. As they should, and and I, I imagine in addition to the <coughs> scholarship recipients and, and the essays that they write, which clearly are a testament to, to Darren's legacy, that you and your family have gotten phone calls and comments from mm -hmm. scores of people about how Darren's legacy lives yeah. on. Yeah, and that that's amazing. Uh, all the stories that have come out that you find out Darren did that. You know, <laughs> as a parent, you say. So um, I would say one example would be a military officer that writes to me and says, "Hey, I wanted to thank. I think about your son all the time. When I was in Ranger School, um, and, and Darren had been recycled, and so recycle uh, Ranger School wears you out. And so he was in the last phase, so he got a chance to." Uh, eat very well for about two or three weeks. And so when the new class came in, these people have been constantly training for a while. And so there's actually hunger issues. They lose I don't know, anything from 15 to 40 pounds. I mean, that's the intent to really challenge you. Um, and they said, Darren actually fed me. He gave me his food. I mean, take a little bit, but he gave me because he knew I was, I was hungry. Or someone says, hey, on that patrol, I wouldn't have made it unless Darren took the radio from me. He didn't need to, but he carried the radio for me. Uh, you hear all these stories of people that reach out and said Darren made a, made a difference. Uh, there was a young lady that reached out to me, uh, Allison Caravan, and she said, I ran the Warner's Robin, Warner's Robin Air Force Base Marathon with Darren. And um, your son helped me make it through. And Darren knew her from, uh, they played racquetball. I think he was going to Penn State at the time. So he was part of the Eastern Collegiate Racquetball Conference. He was on the, on the, uh, on the racquetball team at West Point. And so met him there, they established a friendship, and she wanted to do a, a marathon. And so he said, well, let's do this marathon. And so he ran the marathon with her in about, you know, uh, 19, 20 miles, she was really having a time, hard time. She says, Darren, why don't you go ahead and finish? I, I'm slowing you down. Darren went ahead and finished, and about the 24th mile, she, she doesn't think you make it anymore. And who does she see? Darren actually finished, ran back, and just, you know, just 
uh, motivated her to finish. And she says, I mean, he was such a special person, you know, for doing that. You, I, I get so many stories from people that reach out and tell me how Darren made a difference in their lives, whether it's a, a West Point graduate that says, I was thinking about quitting, and, and, and Darren convinced me to stay at West Point. He actually graduated from West Point eventually, but uh, Darren convinced me to stay. I'm saying, Darren convincing someone else? Uh, so as a parent, you, you see a lot of, uh, you hear a lot of unbelievable stories, you know, about your, your, your child. Well, they are, and I, I imagine we could fill up many hours yeah, talking yeah, about that. So uh, I'll just ask you a, a couple more questions, mm -hmm. but I really enjoyed the conversation. Mm -hmm. And on behalf of the audience, George, yeah. just grateful for your willingness to, to talk about the difficulty of Darren's death. But more importantly, as I know, mm -hmm. you would want to remind everyone the beauty of his life. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what we celebrate here. So the next question is not political. It's about a particular event. But it's, it's, it's trying to put that in a hopeful way. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We'll leave the analysis to that, to the political types. But what I will say on behalf of everyday Americans, whether they are military families like yours or not, is that when Americans saw that, they were a little confused. And certainly my colleagues here at Heritage, them, some of them, men and women who served in uniform, say that's actually contributed to the recruitment problem that you know, maybe there's something wrong with our country. What would you say to them to instill some, some encouragement, some hopefulness, that in spite of some of these challenging episodes, including that withdrawal, that we still need to have faith in our military, we still need to have faith in this country? You know, there's a lot of great people that are military right now. The political system is, and the media is, is uh, giving you, uh, you know, a, a, a slanted perspective, I'll put it that way. Uh, but there's a lot of people that are serving this country because they care about this country. They care about you. And look at uh, serving this nation, given an opportunity. Um, our, our country goes through different cycles where, uh, and I just think we're going through a bad cycle. We'll be out of that cycle at some point because I, when I went to the military, we had John's just gone through the, the debacle of Vietnam. And so uh, I remember going to my platoon and it was uh, drug use was rampant and things along those lines, right? And we were able to turn it into incredible military, right? So, hey, give it time. Just be willing to be willing to dedicate the, the effort and invest uh, your, 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 your hard-earned uh, uh, capacity to deliver some outstanding results. You know, just give back to society. And I think we need to give it a chance because there's a lot of people that really care about this country. So a follow-up question very much related to that one. One of the things I, I like to do with this show is use it as a, as a vehicle to get people to take some specific steps. You've given one there contemplating about military service, another about giving back to society. Let's say someone is uh, on the younger side mm -hmm. in the audience, younger than, than you and me, and they're thinking, okay, this is good advice that George just gave me. But what is something that they can do specifically to honor Darren's legacy hmm. as a fellow American? Wow. I would say if you're looking at people that are in the military uh, and you run across someone, thank them for their service. Be willing to talk to them. Um, if there's lots of military chatter, you're supporting the military. If you can give some money, go ahead and do so. And if not, you know, you can give some of your time. There's... 
disabled American veterans. There's lots of things that are, lots of charities available that serves veterans' causes. Um, so I would say that the key thing, it's not just the military, but just giving back to society. People at a young age learn uh, to just give back to the nation overall, give back to their fellow man. If I look at Darren, Darren's sacrifice, I look at Darren was the embodiment of the American spirit of service to higher calling than self, okay? He cared more about others than he cared about himself. And you don't have to be in the military to do that. There's lots of charities out there where you give back to your fellow citizens, help your fellow citizens, and I think that will build a stronger nation. Thanks so much. I don't think anyone on this show has ever said that better. <laughs> Thanks, George. You're welcome. Well, my friends, I told you it would be a, a moving conversation, which it was, and I think I can speak for George in saying that most of all, to honor Darren's sacrifice, the sacrifice of so many other fellow Americans in uniform, the best thing we can do is to be hopeful about the American future in spite of all of the challenges, all of the reasons that some folks in the media want to give us to despair is to keep our chins up, to serve, to think about others. That's the American spirit. And that is why not only we do this show, but why we are really proud to have our new friend George Hidalgo join me this week. In the meantime, take care. God bless you. Thank you very much, Dr. Robert. You bet. Appreciate the opportunity. God bless you. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.